Amen. Can we give it up one more time? Oh my goodness. Dude, last service I said, I'm going to say it again, dude. That song gets me fired up. I'm like, I'm ready to like take on the world. All right. So good. Death is defeated. The king is alive, right? I love it. So, hey, my name is Michael. I'm the youth pastor here, um, and I have the opportunity this morning to share from God's word with you guys. So I'm really excited for what we have. We're wrapping up kind of the theme of this month, this month, which has been living proof. We've been talking about what does it look like to be the living proof of our loving God. We saw that through the shipwrecks in Paul's life, both on a physical level, also shipwrecks in people's lives on an emotional level. But right now what we're going to do is, is kind of revisit some of what we began this month with. A few, few weeks ago, uh, the kids pastor and I had an opportunity um, to share about this idea of embracing curiosity. Embracing curiosity. We kind of applied it to this context of students and kids and embracing that within conversation with them. But tonight, uh, this morning, what I'd love to do is actually cut one layer beyond that into how do we embrace curiosity with the yet-to-believe in general. So, you know, questions are so important, are they not? I mean, I know for myself, when I turned 18, I went right into community college, okay? I was a heavy hitter, went there uh, to Solano Community College, university near Scandia was what we like to call it. And when I got there, I took a moral philosophy class. And I remember when I, when I took that class, I really thought I was a bright kid because I, I was like, oh, I'm thinking about thinking now. And like, I now know what it means to know. And, and, and my head was getting kind of puffed up. But my professor essentially kind of pivoted the class into, here's five reasons why God doesn't exist. And I was like, rut row. Because um, I had kind of grown up around church, um, but really my faith hadn't been tested a whole lot in that arena yet. And so um, he started firing things off. Some of the goofy ones was, could God make a rock so big he couldn't move it? And I was like, oh, shoot. I don't know. Because, like, if he made a rock so big he couldn't move it, he wouldn't be all-powerful because then he couldn't move the rock. But then if he can't make the rock, is he really all-powerful? And, like, my brain starts like, oh, no, what? there's these logical fallacies here, my beliefs. And then the next one was like, uh, can God make a triangle with four sides? Well, it wouldn't be a triangle then. So, no. <laughs> like, and so what he was trying to do is poke holes in my belief that, that God was all-powerful. Now, the reality is, there's not something wrong with my God. There's something wrong with those questions, okay? Those are called paradoxes. They're illogical fallacies, okay? So, how do you make a triangle with four sides? You don't. It's the definition of a triangle. And so, at, a, at 18, though, I'm starting to get nervous. I'm like, what, what do I do? He started pressing in on issues like morality. Why do you believe that's good? Is it because some God far off said it is? And he would really challenge me in that class. And, and really, for me... That became a time when I started to press into my faith. I had a lot of questions, and I kept getting more questions every week. And so uh, luckily I was in that class with a couple friends of mine that I had um, gone to church with, and we just pressed into that thing together, man. I mean, we were buying books. Like our Amazon book list was, you know, stacked with stuff from guys like William Lane Craig and all these other apologists, like trying to just learn and soak in as much as we could. We were pestering our pastors all the time. We're just peppering him with questions like, hey, well, what about this? And what do you think about the rock thing, Pastor Josh? Like, help me out here. And, and we were investigating Jesus. We were curious. And I can say on the other side of that season, I'm immensely grateful for the fact that people were willing to embrace my curiosity. They, they were willing to go there with me and, and let me ask questions. 
They didn't turn me away. They didn't say, hey, all right, that's too many questions for today. Move it on. No, they engaged with me. They embraced it. And during that time, what I was really doing is I was investigating Jesus. I was trying to determine if I really believed he is who he says he is. And so my hope for us today as we talk about embracing curiosity is that we would actually see ourselves as embracers of curiosity ourselves. Because, yeah, maybe that was a thing that happened in college, but the reality is many of you, like, are called to be in that season right now too. And I'm convinced that actually as a follower of Jesus, our curiosity shouldn't wane. We should keep asking questions of who Jesus is, keep exploring who he is, so we have a better foundation and knowledge and trust and reliance in him. I don't think it ends. Now, some of you are here, and you're actually exploring that right now. Like, your girlfriend made you come here, or your, your buddy's like, hey, we're going out to lunch later. Just come with me to church, right? And so you're in that phase now on the, on the front end. My hope for you is that you'd lean in in this conversation, that you'd see what we're talking about. You'd see who Jesus is in light of this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a conversation that Jesus has with somebody. His name is Nicodemus. I love Nicodemus, okay? You're going to see why in a few minutes. But we see him come to Jesus and have this really interesting conversation about what does it mean to be born again? We're going to unpack that this morning. Let me uh, read the text for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I've said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And now for the verse that most of you in here have probably heard before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, the verdict, the ruling. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true 
comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your example here in this text. We thank you for the way that you engaged this man in conversation, the way that, that you spoke with him and you connected on his level, but you also called him to a higher standard. Jesus, we thank you for the reality in this text that we see that we can be born again in you. And so I pray that as we dive in, God, that you would speak to our hearts, you would inform our minds, that you would lead us to act out what it is that you've called us to be in you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Everybody said, amen. So the text opens up with Nicodemus showing up to Jesus in the middle of the night. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which meant he had memorized everything we call today the Old Testament, okay? Most of us probably couldn't even say what books are in the Old Testament. He memorized every word, okay? And not only that, but he memorized additional writings as a Pharisee. So he would have memorized more things that there were kind of commentary on it or other writings from the Jewish people. He was a bright man. Now, he wasn't just a Pharisee. He was actually a ruler of the Jews, which meant he was a part of a ruling council called the Sanhedrin, about 70 to 72 Pharisees that oversaw the Jews in Jerusalem. Okay? He was a part of that group, which meant he was at the top of the top of the top. He's like the professor of divinity at Harvard, okay? like top of his game. No, you know, no one could come close to him. He was, he was the pinnacle of, of this whole setup that they had. He was bright. But what's interesting is he comes to Jesus for a question. You see, Jesus was kind of this backwoodsy dude. He had an accent, okay? We see in the New Testament that the people from Galilee talked funny, okay? Jesus was from Galilee. And we see him, him going around and preaching. And this guy who's super learned, had every degree you could think of, came to this man who had an accent who was going around and preaching the kingdom. For him, it was probably a little embarrassing, He's going to the guy who has no credibility and saying, okay, what, what are you talking about? What does this mean? So he approaches in the dead of night. Now, in John's gospel, there's this really interesting metaphor that he plays with the whole time. He plays with this idea of the light and the dark. Light always represents truth. Light represents Jesus. Light represents being found. The darkness represents death. It represents being lost. It represents sin. And so it's no mistake that John includes this note that he comes at night because he brings back around this idea of light and darkness at the end of the narrative. So he's approaching in his lostness. And he asks him a question. He says, Rabbi, here, here it's likely respectful. He's saying, hey, teacher, we know, meaning he's talked about Jesus with his friends. See, in John's gospel, Jesus has already made a big splash. John wrote to kind of tell us the stories that, like, the other guys didn't, okay? So imagine if your best friend wrote a biography of your life. That's what happened. John is writing. He's telling all these cool stories. And what Jesus had just done is he performed this miracle at Cana where he turned water into wine. And then he went into the temple and cleansed it, okay? That's not vacuuming. That's driving people out who were taking advantage of others religiously, okay? He went in there, made a big splash, and was teaching about the kingdom, the sovereign rule and reign of God that was to come. And so he was making a big splash in that community. And as that text ends, it says that Jesus knows what was in the heart of man. That's what actually sets up the rest of John, where we see him have conversation after conversation with people, where he gets right into the heart of the matter. He does the same thing here with Nicodemus. He goes right for the heart. What I love that Jesus does here is he embraced Nicodemus' curiosity through conversation. If we look at uh, the rest of John, we actually see Nicodemus pop up a couple more times. 
in chapter 7, verse 50 through 52, uh, he kind of supports Jesus. You see, Jesus was coming under fire by the Pharisees, and Nicodemus is like, well, maybe he could be a prophet. What do you guys think? And they're like, uh, you yourself know no one's a prophet that comes from Galilee. He's like, oh, sorry, sorry. You know, he's not ready to fully stand up, but he's ready to kind of stand up. But we see his story come full circle in chapter 19. In chapter 19, 39, what we see is Jesus has been crucified. And he's finally died upon the cross. And this man named Joseph of Arimathea, he, he was a wealthy man. He was going to bury Jesus. And Nicodemus was present at that time. Nicodemus was likely a man of wealth, a man of means. And what we see Nicodemus bring into the equation is spices to bury him with. These, these things that they would use to dress the body. The stuff that's recorded there in John is like a royal burial. It's like he was burying a king. On some level, Jesus had become Nicodemus's king. We can infer that from what he does. Now, it didn't happen right here in John 3. We, we don't know that, right? But we do see that this conversation happened. And Nicodemus kept watching. He stayed curious. And we see some sort of change happen in his life. And I think a big part of it is because Jesus was willing to go here with him in this conversation. Here's how Jesus responds. He says, truly, truly, whenever Jesus says that, you know it's about to be a truth bomb, okay? He's like, truly, truly, I mean what I'm about to say. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here Jesus introduces a new metaphor. We actually don't see it in a whole lot of the Old Testament. He says, you're going to be born again. What could that mean? Nicodemus, who is bright, remember? He's a smart guy. He's not stupid. He fires back with sarcasm. <laughs> What do I got to do? Crawl back up my mother's womb? That's the funny part of the text. Okay. <laughs> he fires back at him saying, oh, okay, Mr. Metaphor. I'll, I'll take your metaphor literally. And Jesus is like, no way, dude. Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He goes back to the same statement. They're paralleled. You know, there's entire denominations that base their belief off of this verse, the water and the spirit. But, but I'm convinced that when you look at the way it's structured, born again and water and the spirit are tied together. It's one experience. It says born of water and the spirit. He's speaking on his level. You see, if Nicodemus had memorized the Old Testament, he would have been aware of, of a chapter in Ezekiel called Ezekiel 36. Where in Ezekiel 36, we see this theme and this promise and this prophecy of a cleansing water that would sprinkle the nation and the spirit of God that would be poured out to make them new. There would be a pouring out of God's spirit. There would be a renewal, a being born again, a fresh start. So he says he cannot enter the kingdom of God unless this happens. Why? Because flesh is born of flesh. Dogs make dogs. Cats make cats. Dolphins make dolphins. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. See, this is something that can only be done by God. This is something that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, don't marvel at what I say to you, inferring that Nicodemus is like, what now? Because at first he might have been being sarcastic, but now he's like, wait, what, dude? You're pulling out some Ezekiel 36 stuff and dropping this on me. He says, look, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. He says, look at the trees. When wind blows, trees move. You can't see wind. Maybe you can see like some particles in the air, but you can't really see it. It's transparent, but you see its effects. The same is true of the Spirit. When the Spirit blows in your life, there are effects in your life. 
things begin to change. Uh, my wife Lexi and I are on this fitness journey right now, okay? It's really fun. Um, I've been learning how to eat better, exercise, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'll tell you right now, it's been hard because I really like a lot of different kinds of food, especially food that's very bad for me. Um, and so the following is not a knock on this company. Um, I actually think they're delicious, and check it out if you want to. But has anybody heard of Kiki's Chicken? Some of you, some of our youth are in here like, yes, we know. Kiki's Chicken is a brand new chicken place in Folsom. They're not new. They've got a bunch of like other locations around. But let me tell you, the chicken at Kiki's Chicken is incredible, okay? It's like they take these little like chicken tender things and inject them with salt water. It's like so juicy when you eat them. It's amazing. Okay, and they, they have this, uh, <laughs> this dish called the Kiki Fries. Check this out. Mm. Here's what they do. They take French fries. <laughs> I can tell which ones of you like are health nuts and which ones of you aren't because you're like, some are like, yes, Lord. And the others are you like, no, get it out of here. Okay, look, there's fries. They get buffalo sauce on there. They've got ranch, blue cheese, mozzarella, and the chicken tenders. <laughs> this thing is a 1,600-calorie nuclear bomb in your stomach. <laughs> when I went to Kiki's for the first time, it was so delicious that I came back Wednesday, two days later, with my friend. Came back Friday again with more people. I had Kiki's three times in one week, okay? It was intense. I was, I was on it. And here's the deal. Now it's been a couple months. We've been on this, you know, journey. And I look at that, and to be honest, it's a little bit less appetizing for me now. The other day for lunch, I went to Nugget and got a pound of kale. You can do that there. (laughs) Here's the point. My desires are starting to change. My taste buds are starting to change. The things that I loved, the things that I wanted, are no longer the things that I want because I see them for what they are. The same is true with the Spirit. The same is true with being born again. You get new tastes. You want a new flavor. You want the Spirit to blow in your life. Was that a funeral? Sorry. Oh, gosh, I'm going to do it again. Dang it. Dude, I almost lost it in first service too. Okay, I was at a funeral yesterday. And they were talking about this man who was born again. And it was abundantly evident in his life. They were getting up here, and, and every person was telling testimony after testimony of the life this man lived. How he, they never caught him looking at another woman once in his life. He was born again. He had trusted in Jesus. His desires had changed. He honored his wife day after day after day. He talked about Jesus all the time. He modeled what it looks like to be a servant leader. He was the guy who would pick up cigarette butts in the church parking lot for their church. He was also an elder at one point. This man was born again. His life looked different. And people could see it. They could see the effects. You don't see like a glowing halo over somebody. Their faces don't glow. But you see the effects in their life, the way that they live, the choices that they make. They've been born again. They've had a new, fresh start. When you're sitting at the barber shop and they start talking about that girl that walked by, you don't engage. Why? Because you're born again. Because your desires have changed. Because you taste something new. You want something different. You want what God has for you. You want the spirit to blow in your life. That's what it means to be born again. We seek to be living proof of God's love. We have new desires. 
continues. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? To be fair, Nicodemus here is like, you're telling me, Jesus, that you can get a fresh start? There's no way. Nobody gets a fresh start. We all only have one shot at this thing, and if you mess it up, you're done. How do you get a fresh start? And he says, hey, are you the teacher of Israel or not? Like, dude, you should be getting this. This is what God has been about from the beginning. He says, you don't understand these things? Look, truly, truly, I say to you that we know. Now, Jesus is being sarcastic back. I love this. He's like, we know. If you say we were talking before, well, we know that we bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. I've told you earthly things. I'm just talking about wind here, buddy, and you still don't get it? How could you even hope to hear about heavenly things from me? And he talks about how the son of man is the one who can speak to it. It's like someone who tries to talk about a travel destination who's never been there versus someone who's actually been there who can talk about it. They have firsthand knowledge of it. The same is true with the son of man. It's in Daniel chapter 7. It talks about how there will come one like the son of man on a cloud who will bring this new covenant, this new way of living. That's Jesus. Jesus ties himself to that figure. That's who he is. He says, nobody can speak of these things like the son of man can. What Nicodemus may not know yet is he's standing before the son of man who has authority to talk about new beginnings. So he says, on his level, remember, staying with the common ground that Nicodemus knew, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the son of man be lifted up. He's referring to Numbers 21. If you're not familiar with the story, basically, God saves the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. That was good news. It didn't take long until they were, like, self-focused and self-centered again. God, why'd you bring us out here in the desert? You were in slavery. And they start complaining. God gives them food from heaven. They're like, I don't like the way it tastes. And so at one point, they, they keep rebelling against God and, and, getting, and trying to like get you know, mad at God. And so God lets these vipers come, and they start biting them. They're being bitten by venomous snakes, and people start dying. This is God's judgment now being poured out on them. And they freak out. Like, what are we going to do? We, we can't just take a, a, a viper and get some antivenom in our laboratory. It's not how it works here. They're dying out here. And so they go to Moses. They're like, Moses, save us. Has God left us? Where is God? And God talks to Moses as, as they interact. And he says, look, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get a stick. And then you're going to get a, a serpent-like piece of bronze. Okay, you're going to fashion it to look like a serpent. You're going to put that on a stick. And you're going to hold it up in front of people. And as soon as they look at that thing, they're going to be saved. As soon as they look at the very picture of what it is, that they've caused and brought upon themselves, they would be saved. So Moses holds up the stick, and the people of Israel look at it, and they start getting healed from the venom, like that. They don't die. The same is true of Jesus. You see, when that stick was raised up, it's a picture of the fact that only God is the provider of life. You see, they couldn't save themselves. They had no means to save themselves. There, there was no way they could have figured that out. And yet God says, look, I'm the provider of life. Look at this and be healed so that there's no shadow of a doubt who is responsible for the healing in their life. The same is true with Jesus. As Jesus was lifted up on the cross, the picture of the very death you and I deserved, what that secured for you and for me is a new beginning of being born again, that we would look at Jesus 
and be saved. That we would believe in him and be saved. Why? Because it's not about what you do. You can't earn God's love. You see him say, no, I love you because I'm loving. Gets on that cross, and as we look at him, we're saved. It's, it's, a, it's an offense to our self-righteousness. Us thinking that we could save ourselves and saying, no, you couldn't do this yourself. I had to do it for you. It says, so the Son of Man will be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's why there's that uh, logo on hospitals. You guys ever wondered that? What's that snake around the stick for? That's what it's from. The great physician. John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved. My hope for you as we we go through this is maybe you try to hear this and read this with some fresh eyes. Like, I know you guys have probably heard this at some point, whether you've been to church or not. You've seen it on a billboard. You saw it on Tim Tebow's eye black, okay? So so you're, you're familiar that it's a thing. But I hope as we read through this, you're reading with fresh eyes. It says, for God so loved the world. You see, God so loved, in this way he loved, to this extent, to this purpose, he loved the world. Now, we might think of the world as like that happy place that songs are about. No, it's the creative order against the creator. Rebellious humanity, the ones who are spitting in the face of Jesus as he's walking to the cross to die for them. That's the world. That's us. It says, for God so loved the world. Not because we're so lovable. One, one commentator I was reading, he was talking about how, how in today's age, it's actually not kind of a surprise to a lot of people that God would love us. Of course God loves us. I'm a good guy. I'm a good dude. I, I don't, you know, I don't cheat on my taxes. So, of course God's going to love me. It's actually kind of a surprise that God would love us because the reality is that we actually aren't as lovable as we might like to think because of our sin. And yet, God loves because he is loving. He himself is love. That's what John says throughout his works. When he writes, he talks about the fact that God is love. He loves because he is that kind of God, not because we're so lovable. And it says that he gave his only son. Now, I don't have kids yet, but I can't imagine any one of you in here would give your kid for me. I can't imagine I would give a future kid for you. I'll be honest. I like most of you in here, but the reality is I would not, like, let my son die for you. And yet that's what God was willing to do. That's the extent to which he would go. Later in John's gospel, it says no, no greater love has a man than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. That's the love of Jesus. And God gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, whoever would look to him, whoever would lay down their own need to save themselves, their own idols that they turn to for their own salvation, they would kick them off the throne of their heart and say, no, Jesus, I want you to sit here. I want you to be Lord of my life. Whoever would be willing to do that could get a fresh start that begins today, that eternal life begins today with Jesus. As we journey with him, we're gonna do that for the rest of eternity. He says, look, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that we would be saved through him. So the first time Jesus comes, it's like a redemption mission, right? He came to this earth not to condemn us. Condemnation is like a severe or extreme punishment that we deserved. He didn't come to bring that the first time. He came for redemption, to save us, to make a trade for us. The second time he comes back, he's whipping out the sander for restoration. Like he's gonna come back and make things right. He's gonna set the broken bones. He's going to bring the judgment that he talked about. 
But the first time he's saying, look, this is, the, this is the deal that you all could get. You all could have a fresh start if you would just look to me. If you would just look to Jesus. And yet, we like that first part, right? We like the fact that Jesus didn't come to condemn us. And then we get halfway through verse 18 and we're like, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. We already stand condemned. We already stand on the line because we don't deserve it. We're not the lovable type. And yet God is loving. All we have to do is believe in the name of the Son of God. And then what happens is he blows his spirit through your life. And it begins to make those changes. It begins to have those effects. You get the new desires. You begin to want other things. You want the things of God, not the things of this world. And so John wraps up this this conversation with this saying, and this is the judgment. This is what, this is the verdict. That light has come to the world. Light and darkness. Remember, it's a, it's a popular theme in John's gospel here again, representing Jesus. Light came into this world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. In a few minutes, you guys are going to walk outside and the sun's going to be like at the perfect angle, the boiler corneas. Uh, <laughs> happens like every week for me. You've been sitting in a dark room, right? You walk into the light, and it kind of hurts if you don't have your, like, polarized sunglasses on, okay? The same is true about this, but infinitely more. Is that the darkness we've surrounded ourselves in, the darkness that we've chosen, it can be kind of comfortable to us. We don't want to go into the light, lest our works be exposed. Let people actually know who, what we're really like when no one's around. And yet... He says, for everyone who does wicked things, they hate the light. They don't want anything to be shown, right? But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Whoever has been born again, whoever has trusted in God to do the work in their life can go to the light because because it can be clearly seen that the works they're doing in their life are carried out by God. It's God's spirit who saves. It's not our own actions, They can see that anything good in your life is actually a result of what God has done. So you can stand in the light. You can say, yeah, you know what? I am a knucklehead. I do mess up. You know what? God loves me, and he's he's made me born again, and I'm being born again, again, again every day, trying to become more like him. And we can stand unashamed because of the work that he has done in his son Jesus on the cross. And so our implications today from the text are simple. I mean, I think we see Jesus embracing this man's curiosity, do we not? We see him having a conversation, being willing to talk with him on his level, being available, right? He came to him in the dead of night. I would have wanted to sleep. Jesus didn't. He stayed up and talked to him. He didn't say, hey, let's set up an appointment next Thursday afternoon. No, he talked to him right there. He was available. Jesus asked him questions back that piqued his curiosity. Did you notice that? A lot of that was an answer, but some of that was a question. It was causing him to think. He embraced that. And so my encouragement to you as we look at this would, first and foremost, if you're in here and you love Jesus already, I hope that you keep embracing your questions about God. I really do. Because I promise you, the more you dig into who he is, the more you let him blow in your life, you're going to see a difference. You're going to see a change. And you're going to find Jesus more and more. We need to continually investigate who he is so that our foundation is built upon him. Not on our works, not on our actions, but first and foremost upon him so that those things would follow. For his glory, not ours. 
we also need to embrace curiosity for the purpose of conversation with the yet to believe. You see, we're eternal optimists at Vintage Grace, okay? We don't call people unbelievers. They're yet to believe, okay? Our hope is they're going to follow Jesus one day. And so it's yet to believe. Our prayer is, is that you would be the ones to have the conversation. I get so excited when I find out that someone else got to help somebody cross the line of faith. I'm like, yes, that's the point. It's not so that some idiot, sorry, me, not Drew, some guy can stand up here on a stage and yell at you guys for 40 minutes and get people saved. That's not exactly how it's supposed to work, okay? You are the saints empowered for mission to be the living proof of our loving God. That you would have the conversation over coffee. That you would have the conversation while you're sitting like with the mom vans, like waiting for practice to get done, okay? That's when. That's where. But here's the deal. We've got to be ready for those questions. And it's actually okay not to know the answer. Like, you don't have to be Nicodemus and get, you know, be top of the line, awesome at everything, knowing everything to get it. You don't. You just have to be born again and be able to point to the fact that I was once dead in my sin and now I'm alive in Christ. Here's why. Now, if you're here and you're like, dude, I, I don't love Jesus yet. Like, my girlfriend made me come here. My, my like, dad is, like, forcing me to come to church, whatever. Like, My hope for you is that you would continue to embrace your curiosity. Ask a question. If you've got some like doubt about God or something that you're kind of mad at him for, talk to somebody about it. The person who brought you would love to talk to you about it. I promise you. If not, you can come talk to me. Please embrace your curiosity. Please investigate him. You know, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He calls it um, the trilemma, okay? You might know him for Narnia. He's actually a brilliant theologian too, okay? He said, it's called the trilemma, this, this threefold question of who is Jesus. Either Jesus is a liar, meaning he showed up and, and, was, and was just telling everybody he's God, told him about this new birth and all that, but he kind of made it up. Oh, and a lot of people are really sad now because they followed a lie and died for it. Or he was a lunatic. The dude was off his rocker. And when he showed up, he got all the other crazy people together. And now there's millions of crazy people in the world who believe this stuff. Maybe he was crazy. Or maybe, the third option, maybe he's actually Lord. Maybe he actually is who he said he is. Maybe... When he came and did the things that he did, when he showed us what it means to be truly human in submitting our lives to God, maybe that was real. And maybe these lives that you see around you of these born-again Christians, which sometimes get a bad rap, they're born again because they've got a new start. And that new start in their life is a product of a real God who really lives and who really loves and wants you to love him too. I think the last one is this. I think we're called to live as proof be the living proof of a loving God. Now, um, I'm not as bold as Drew is sometimes. <laughs> so uh, you guys maybe heard the story about him with like his living proof t-shirt on. And anyway, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So I'm at Nugget getting my pound of kale and I go up to the checkout and I had my living proof shirt on. Okay. And, and I like it because I think it looks cool. And, and the person at the checkout's like, living proof, what does that mean? And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> I said, it's living proof that God can love everybody. Because <laughs> Drew said it, so I thought it would be good. And she, she just looked at me like, that's horrible. <laughs> that sounds so mean. I was like, 
I'm sorry, like, I totally failed, okay? I tried to, like, recover and be like, oh, I mean, I mean, well, because, like, I'm kind of a knucklehead, and I, you know, it's awesome to me that God loves me, and so I wear this shirt, and, and I, totally, I totally bombed the conversation, okay? But, but here's the deal. The reason why I like wearing the shirt isn't because I'm so good at evangelizing and conversation with strangers. I like wearing it because it actually reminds me of the high call that I have. That God has called me to something higher. He's called me to be the living proof of his love. But let me also say that while this is a high call, while this is a heavy weight, his burden is easy and his yoke is light, right? Because he's the one who does the work. We know we can stand in the light not because we're good, but because he is good. And that we can stand before people and say, actually, like, I'm not a great living proof of a loving God. But also he is loving. And the fact that I can stand before you today, I could point to countless, countless times when God has shown his love to me when I least expected it. Where he proved to me over and over and over again that he is loving. No matter what storm I was facing, no matter what trial I was in the middle of, he was always loving. That's the story I hope that you guys can say. That you can live as proof because God is good. And you can say that with confidence because you've experienced it. So what we're going to do is we're going we're, we're to watch a story here from a woman from our church. And I, I just love the way that she tells it because she went through some storms. And at the end of it, what, what happens is incredible. But we'll circle back to it after the next worship song. But I hope you guys key into it because what we see is somebody's curiosity was embraced. Even in the midst of storms, even in the midst of failure, you guys check out the story from Monody. 